This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Hi there, Andrew Dunkley here, the host of Space Nuts. And good to be with you for another episode, episode 371. Coming up on this week's episode, could it be Planet Nine, Planet Nine and a Half, or something else? Uh, It looks like there may be a planet out there in the Kuiper Belt. Uh, and round about Earth size, perhaps, which is fascinating. Uh, but not Planet Nine, possibly. Maybe Planet Nine point five. We're, we're going to talk about that. And uh, the James Webb Space Telescope has uh, observed the closest supernova of the modern era. Uh, that is uh, a fascinating discovery as well. We'll also be talking comets, space time. Uh, betting on big bangs and antimatter and uh, a few other things in our question and answer session later on. That's all coming up on this edition of Space Nuts. 15 seconds, guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. And joining me to talk about all of that, minus the dad jokes, we hope, is Professor Fred. What's an astronomer at large? Hello, Fred. Uh, where do you get your? Where, where do planets get their? T- uh, where do planets get their music from? I don't know. Neptunes. Oh, I should have known that. I should have known. That's that's almost as horrible as the one you told on the TikTok. TikTok, <laughs> yeah, sorry. That was oh. the one. And I can't even tell either of them without jumbling up the words. I think I'm the world's worst dad joke teller. And mm. you at least always get the words in the right order. <laughs> oh, gosh. I'm just, yeah, I'm not going to do one. I'm not sure. going to do one. I so want to, though. <laughs> What do you call a telescope that uh, can't stop running itself? Uh, see, I blew it. Now you, I caught it from you. What do you call a telescope that can't stop running into stuff? Uh, a pretty dot telescope, really. A, a kaleidoscope. Oh, horrible! See, I, I knew I could do worse. That's good. I, I knew I could do worse. Okay. <laughs> With all that in mind and uh, the remnants of our audience, uh, let's get down to business. Uh, Now, um, this one really excites me because we have talked about Planet Nine and the search continues, but this is a story about a discovery that uh, probably is not Planet Nine, but it is a yet-to-be-confirmed potential maybe planet (laughs) in the Kuiper Belt, um, which... uh, is suggested to be possibly Earth-like. So it could be a planet rather than a planetoid, Fred. Well, yes, that's right. And that's a very good uh, very good point on which to introduce this because uh, planetoids, I suppose we we call dwarf planets uh, yeah. planetoids now. I just like planetoid. It's a, it's it sounds a like good a word. Complaint, though, doesn't it? It's a bit no, like it doesn't. meteoroid. Uh, the, <laughs> um, the 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 The... Key thing that we're talking about really is, as you said, the Kuiper Belt, way out there, uh, beyond the, ne- the 
the orbit of Neptune. Uh, and in fact, we think Pluto is a particularly large Kuiper Belt object, not the largest. There's one that's actually about the same diameter, uh, but but greater in mass. I'm trying to remember which one it is. Uh, it'll come back to me. Um, Sedna? No, it's not Sedna. It's the... Um, <sighs> It, it's its moon is called Dysnomia. So what's it called? I've forgotten the name of it. That's ridiculous. Mm. Anyway, uh, it doesn't matter because um, the the bottom line is that these things range in size from, uh, you know, from probably a couple of hundred kilometers because below that, it's not going to be a dwarf planet because it won't have enough gravity to pull it into a spherical shape. Um, so dwarf planet, planets are defined as being big enough that gravity has pulled them into a spherical or near spherical shape. Uh, Sedna, uh, Coeo, there's a whole heap of them that are that sort of shape and therefore classified as dwarf planets. Yeah. Um, in, or, in order to, to be promoted to planet status, though, you've got to get rid of all the other ones. You've got to have cleared your bit of the solar system of other debris. Oh, okay. So, so if, if, you, if you're living in rubbish, you don't get the Guernsey. No, that's right. You, you, you Essentially, the debris left over from whatever formed you as a dwarf planet, if that's still around, well, you're not a planet. planet. Even the solar system has a ghetto. Yeah, it's got uh, class structure, really, hasn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah, if you're out there in the cold, uh, you know, get a job. Get a job. (laughs) Yes, wasn't that some famous Australian federal politician? Yes, it was. It was. Or get a job. Anyway, yes, so sympathetic. Enough of that. Um, uh, This is a study that has come from, uh, well, two Japanese institutions, the National Astronomical Observatory of Japan, NAOJ, which I visited probably a couple of decades ago, uh, and Kindai University. And what they've done, uh, the scientists who, who are at these institutions who are interested in this work, and this is being published in the Astronomical Journal, which is one of the, le- the world's leading journals on astronomy, uh, they have looked at the objects in the Kuiper belt, of which we know of more than a thousand, uh, and looked at their orbits, uh, studied the way their orbits are distributed, um, and, you know, things like the alignment of their, what they call the major axis, that's the long axis of an elliptical orbit, um, and essentially studied these, these objects, and some of them are probably not much more than asteroids, uh, and see that there is uh, a kind of circulation among them um, in that some of their motions are not as random as you might think they ought to be. Mm. Um, And that is suggesting to these authors that, yes, somewhere lurking inside the Kuiper belt itself, uh, which is, as I said, it's where Pluto is. It's just beyond the orbit of, of, uh, of Neptune. Uh, they think there is a planet there that's, whose gravity is shepherding these objects to behave in certain ways. Okay. Now, um, that is a very similar story to the Planet Nine story. It is. Um, but the Planet Nine story is different in that what you're looking at there is not objects in the Kuiper Belt, which is the, the sort of nearest of these the disks of outer asteroids beyond the orbit of Neptune. Uh, what the Planet Nine story is looking at is what are called ETNOs, extreme trans-Neptunian objects. These are things that are way, way beyond the orbit of Neptune. 
Mm. Um, remembering that Neptune is about 30 times the distance uh, from the sun as we are on Earth, what, what's called an astronomical unit. Yeah. So uh, the, the Planet Nine story is looking at something that's probably more than a 1,000 astronomical units from the sun, whereas the Kuiper Belt story, this new uh, suspected solar system planet, uh, story is about an object that's probably about half that distance from the sun, maybe something like 500 astronomical units, but still okay. near enough to the Kuiper belt to, to, to for, the, for its gravity to have a, a significant pull on these objects. And, and of course, this um, the idea of discovering something because of the gravity, because of its gravitational influence on something else, is an mm. old idea. Uh, that's how the planet Neptune was discovered back in 1846 by people looking at the way uh, the orbit of, of Uranus behaved. Uh, Uranus uh, had what we call per- gravitational perturbations in it. In other words, it's, it, it was being nudged by gravity uh, in a way that couldn't be accounted for by the other seven planets. Um, so uh, the, uh, the the orbit of um, uh, of Neptune is what was found. Sorry, that couldn't be accounted for by the other six planets because yeah. uh, Uranus was the uh, was the seventh, and then Neptune, the eighth planet, was found as a result of that. So yeah, the idea of using planetary what you might call you know transgressions from normal motion uh, of planets uh, that is a great way to find other objects, and so. That's what these authors are now proposing, that maybe there is a trans-Neptunian planet that we haven't yet discovered. Okay. Uh, now, as you say, if it's sort of living living in a rubble pile it's, yes. and they, they confirm the discovery and it goes through the motions and uh, it, it gains uh, some kind of status, whether it's a planet or a um, dwarf planet or, or, or an object of some significance in the Kuiper belt, Will, de- will be determined by whether or not it's swept its doorstep. Clean. Yes, that's exactly right as to whether as to how it's def- uh, defined. Yes, you're quite so. Right. If, if it's in an orbit where it's uh, it's basically spread the debris away and you know don't come near me, this is my space. Yep, rack off. Uh, yeah. it, it could well be a planet. Yeah, that's a fully fine. fledged planet. Um, it's, if it's big enough to be spherical uh, for its own gravity to have pulled it into a spherical shape, um, then it will be a planet. Uh, as you said, if it swept its own doorstep, I do love that term, Andrew. That's, Thank you. You should be on the radio. <laughs> I'll think about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so if it's done that, that's fine. It's uh, it's counted as a planet. And wouldn't that be amazing if, mm-hmm. the, if the planet nine that is finally discovered or recognized turns out not to be the one that we've all been talking about for the last, what, uh, eight years, I think, seven years now? You know, uh, it, it would not surprise me. No. Because we've been so intent on Planet Nine, yeah, <laughs> and other people are looking somewhere else and going, "Well, hang on a minute, I think we've found a ninth one that, you know, will put Planet Nine out to pasture for a while, and we'll have to change that to Planet Ten if this all comes to well, fruition." It, it could be. Wouldn't that be a turn up for the books if the other I one reckon. turned out to be to be Planet Ten? Yeah, uh, yeah. So. Um, and what's being suggested here, whereas uh, if I remember right, rightly, Planet Nine is thought to be at least four times the mass of the Earth. Hmm. Uh, we're talking about something smaller with this. I don't know what we should call it, Planet Nine A or something like that. Yeah, I, um, yeah, I'm not sure yet. Um, what they're saying, it's about, or oh, it's a bit bigger than Earth, possibly. Yeah, one and a half to three times the size of Earth. Wow. Um, and something else that. W- 
you would think this might make it easier to find because it's um, it's thought to be tilted. Uh, its orbit is thought to be tilted at an inclination of about 30 degrees. Now, that's a significant tilt of the orbit of a planet mm -hmm. um, and might suggest that actually it's going to turn out to be not a planet but a dwarf planet uh, because all the planets lie much closer to the ecliptic, the, the plane of the Earth's orbit, than that. Uh, I think Mercury's got the highest tilt. I can't remember what it is, um, but it's the highest of all the planets. It's in the region of 5 to 10 degrees. Uh, okay. We're talking here about something tilted, whose orbit is tilted at about 30 degrees, the plane of the ecliptic. And that might make it easier to see as well, because you're looking outside the disk of debris that uh, is where the asteroids are and where uh, you know the, a lot of the Kuiper Belt objects are. Yeah, but if it's outside of that, yeah. doesn't that lean more towards it being a planet rather than a dwarf planet uh, yes. or a yes, piece it of does. It, it would be exactly what you've said. Uh, it wouldn't be the tilt of the orbit that would define it or distinguish whether it was a planet or a dwarf planet. It would be the point that you made before that it's it's swept up all the other debris in its orbital neighbourhood. Okay. Either by either by um, accretion, that means things crashing into it, uh, or by gravitationally kicking them out, or actually, as in the case of Jupiter uh, and um, and actually some of the other planets as well, by herding all these other objects into a, a point ahead of or behind planet in its orbit, which is what we call the Trojan asteroid. Mm. In Jupiter's case, there's there's thousands of them, um, some of them ahead of Jupiter, 60 degrees ahead of Jupiter, some 60 degrees behind Jupiter in the two uh, stable Lagrange points. I read the other day that Jupiter got hit and uh, an amateur astronomer actually video recorded it. That uh, happens from time to time. That's interesting. Yeah. You haven't picked up on this one. This is a recent one then, is it? Yeah, yeah. It was only the other day. Uh, okay. But, yeah, nice pickup by the amateur astronomer. And yeah. it's been confirmed by... Um, by other astronomical observations. So, uh, yeah, it definitely happened. They got the flash of the impact. Yes. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's there have been a few uh, such observations made. Probably, you know, one every three or four years, uh, we get an amateur who spotted something hitting Jupiter. It's a great thing. And, of course, that's it's very much the province of the amateur community, the fact mm. that you can look at Jupiter... If you want to, you can look at Jupiter every night. It's just like uh, old Trevor Barry, who apparently was featured on the telly last night uh, out there in Broken Hill. Uh, he's observes Saturn every night. And so when anything's going on on Saturn, Trevor's going to know about it. And he's got connections in very high places in NASA. Yeah. Uh, so he can feed that uh, to anybody who wants to follow up, for example, with the Hubble telescope. Mm, I believe he picked up a major award recently. He did. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's uh, right. He had one last year, an, a national award. This year, he got an international award. The, yeah. um, uh, so just to wrap up the uh, potential ninth planet theory, how do they confirm it or deny it? So um, I think the first thing that has to happen is more observations of, of the Kuiper Belt objects themselves to refine their orbits, to, to gather as much data as you can on as many objects as you can mm. uh, to be able to refine your hypothesis about what you know what gravity it is that they're feeling uh, that is not yet accounted for in the solar system uh, and then uh, once you can um i suppose narrow down the target area of where you think this object might be certainly in terms of its direction from the earth then you can start looking 
uh, as has happened in the case of Planet Nine, uh, by big telescopes looking for a slowly moving object way out there in the depths of the solar system. That's the thing that makes these things so hard to find. Uh, the further away you go from the sun, the more slowly the thing appears to move through the sky, partly because it's physically moving more slowly, but also there's the distance effect. Yeah. You know, it uh, takes a lot longer for it to cover the same angle across the sky. Yeah, like observing the guideposts on the side of the road flashing by and then you look at the mountains and they don't appear to be moving yeah. much at all. That's right. Oh, gee, I'm on a roll today. Yeah, as I said, you should be on the radio. <laughs> okay, well, this is one we'll keep an eye on because there might be more on this if they can uh, uh, confirm those observations or those theories and uh, maybe maybe it's a ninth planet out there somewhere near the Kuiper Belt, which would be really exciting. This is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Let's just take a quick break from the show to tell you about our sponsor, Incogni. Now, I have spoken to you about them a couple of episodes back. This is a, a really interesting idea, one that I, um, I applaud, actually, because uh, there's a lot of information out there in the ether, on the internet, uh, personal information, probably personal information of yours that is being used for illicit purposes whether it's to um, you know send you spam or get your phone number so they can spam you on the phone or to you know being collected by uh, those overseas organizations in in teleconferencing rooms to try and convince you to spend money on something that doesn't exist there's all that sort of stuff going on a lot of this information ends up on the dark web and it is sold it is traded like a commodity so that they can dupe you into spending money for something that doesn't exist or is false or whatever. Well, Incogni is an organisation that has decided to do something about it. Uh, and I'll quote from their website, our mission is to help you take back control of your data privacy. And they're aiming to basically make life difficult for hackers, uh, for people who invade your privacy, uh, or, or, you know, those, those people that duplicate your profiles and pretend to be you. Uh, there's just so many nasty things going on online. So how do you stop it? Well, you could go in and try and fix it yourself. It would take you a couple of years and you'd have to keep doing it over and over again. Or you can get someone to do it for you. And that's where Incogni comes in. Incogni.com slash space nuts is the URL to go to and have a look at what they can do. They are quite uh, amazing and they, they, they do this on your behalf. It's not expensive, but it, it basically... Uh, enables you to clear all these these nasty little spaces online of your data. And I'm sure a lot of people would welcome that. So if you're interested in finding out about uh, Incogni, uh, go to the special URL for a special price, incogni.com slash space nuts. That's incogni.com slash space nuts. And uh, select one of their plans. They've got a 30-day money-back guarantee. Uh, everything's encrypted. Uh, and look, it, it might just be the next big thing on the internet, uh, and just for once, it benefits uh, the honest user. So uh, go and check it out for yourself today in cogni.com slash space nuts. Now back to the show. Zero G and I feel fine. Space nuts. Now, Fred, we have been talking 
incessantly, uh, regularly, about the uh, discoveries and observations of the James Webb Space Telescope. And here we go again, the uh, supposed closest supernova seen in the modern era has been um, not, I, I'm not I'm going to say discovered, but it, it's now been looked at by James Webb, yeah, which is a good tool for it. It is. That's right. Absolutely. Um, the Certainly the biggest uh, space telescope that we have, uh, tuned to the infrared spectrum uh, and doing a very fine job. And you you would expect that it wouldn't be long before the James Webb would turn its its uh, 19 segment, sorry, 18 segment mirror onto the, as you said, the, the brightest supernova in recent times or the nearest supernova in recent times, supernova 1987A. Uh, called that because it was the first one to be discovered in 1987. It was nearly discovered by a good friend and colleague of mine, uh, Rob McNaught, who at that time worked in the telescope next to me on Siding Spring Mountain. I was working at the Schmidt Telescope. He was working at uh, an instrument called the Satellite Tracking Telescope, but he was mm. using it to look for anything that was interesting. And he missed uh, capturing the supernova at its first brightness or peak of brightness back in February 1987. Uh, so where is this supernova? It is a star in the Large Magellanic Cloud, uh, visible from the Southern Hemisphere, which exploded, uh, as I said, February 1987, except that the light had taken 168,000 years to get there. to say. Yeah. yeah, because that's its distance. So, uh, uh, and a naked eye supernova, I mean, I remember it. It was, the in some ways, the most exciting thing that could have happened in modern astronomy uh, mm. to have a naked eye supernova in the in the southern hemisphere with uh, a very very fine four meter class telescope all set to look at it, the Anglo Australian Telescope, which um, I was working at then, of course, as astronomer in charge. Uh, so, sorry, I wasn't. That that was a decade later, 1987. I was still working at the Schmidt Telescope, uh, the smaller telescope on Siding Spring Mountain. Anyway, it was very exciting. What they did at the Anglo-Australian Telescope was they uh, put together what was called a wooden spectrograph, a device made out of wood, uh, which was used to get really high dispersion uh, spectra, uh, the rainbow colours with all that barcode of detail in them, uh, that you could do because this was such a bright object. It was visible to the naked eye. Yeah. So what you could do was spread its light out a long way uh, and look at the incredible detail in the spectrum by doing that. And it turned out that the, the telescope didn't have a spectrograph capable of doing that because they didn't expect the telescope to look at things as bright as this. Mm. Uh, but an event like Supernova 1987A was one not to be wasted. And many reputations were made in that era when people used this cobbled together spectrograph to look really into the incredible detail of the supernova and its remnants, what happened to try and learn about the physics of the thing. So that's the backstory. Yeah. Uh, now what we have is a new facility, uh, unhampered by bits of wood, uh, and actually able to study. Wouldn't, wouldn't you know it? Wouldn't you know it? That's right. <laughs> I wouldn't. <laughs> he would. Yeah. Um, okay, are, are we finished now? <laughs> mm, I wouldn't go there again. There must be, there must be more than that. I'm just going to draw a plank underneath this. Just rubbish. <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> no, that's not bad. Not bad, not bad. 
Anyway, there's a branch of the science that actually lets you. <laughs> it's the best I can do, Andrew. That's okay. That's okay. A, a branch of the science that lets you look into the innermost details of uh, of supernova remnants when you've got one as near as this, 168,000 light years. Yes, yeah. it's another galaxy, not our own Milky Way, but certainly the nearest uh, supernova we've had the opportunity to study in detail. Um, with a caveat that I'll come back to in a minute. Uh, anyway, the, the Webb telescope has looked uh, and produced a very, very fine image uh, with the mid-infrared camera, if I remember rightly, uh, which uh, essentially um, probes the, the remnants of this explosion uh, now, um, you know, across 35 years ago or thereabouts. Uh, yeah. Yep, 35 years ago, a little bit more. Um that you yeah, that that uh, was that discovery was twenty twenty third of February. We were married the twentieth of January that year. So uh, just you after we were married, cosmic event to celebrate your your marriage. Oh, yeah, maybe you should, should try that out, Judy. Sometime just to, to, mm. you know, the heavens aligned for anyway. Enough of that. Um, <laughs> what we can do now is look at the at the structure that is there, and you can see. You know, really interesting bits like the fact that um, a shock wave that uh, rippled out from the explosion itself actually had something to ripple through because this star had been shedding its outer layers for decades before, uh, maybe even hundreds of years before it had been leaking its outer atmosphere into space. Mm. And um, and then the explosion happened when it went supernova. And so that uh, the, the shock wave spreads through that uh, that region of space that's rich in gas that has already been uh, shed by the by the star, and and you've got all this structure. There's um, we think that the 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 sort of blob of gas that is around the supernova is shaped like an hourglass, um, with all the really interesting action taking place at the uh, along the waist of the hourglass. It, but oh that, yeah, I can see what you're talking about now. Yeah, I wondered what I wondered why it looked like a like a figure eight type. Figure eight, of, yes, that's right. So we see it as a figure eight, but in three dimensions, it's probably an hourglass. Yeah. and the what's called the equatorial ring uh, is where uh, you know this shock wave is hitting the stuff around it, and there are hot spots around the ring. It look, it's amazing. It's a string of pearls effect almost. It is too, yeah. Uh, looking looking really quite remarkable. Um, so a lot of structure. It's worthwhile, um, anybody who's interested in this, uh, chasing up. There are a number of websites uh, that have this image on them, including James Webb Telescope, but yeah. uh, Universe Today is another one. Uh, Fraser, Fraser Cairns, um website there, great stuff. Uh, and so we've got this wonderful uh, new image with lots of detail in it. Was what I was going to say was um, following up on the websites is good because it will give you a kind of almost a guided tour of the structure uh, around this supernova remnant, so you can mm. see what's going on. And we've got um, all these stars around it, which have got funny six six um, petaled artifacts around them. And that, yes. of course, that's the remnants of the diffraction. Uh, spikes, which come from the fact that the mirrors are all hexagonal. Um, oh, wow! In that hexagonal. What a fascinating effect! Yeah, it's lovely, isn't it? <laughs> it is. I wonder like, why they look like that. I thought they were just blurred because they were in the background and they were using an iPhone. <laughs> well, big iPhone. Um, <laughs> so yes, they they almost look like um, Christmas decorations. They, they, they do. 
and they're they're highly processed, of course, in terms of the um, the data processing to get the imagery out. Um, so yeah, it's a, a remarkable that we have a facility like the web um, to look at the the remnants and study the light from this supernova. And the point I was going to uh, what which, what I alluded to a few minutes ago mm. um, that the last bright supernova was. Uh, if I remember Kepler's supernova, which I think was in 1604 or thereabouts, uh, again, uh, it, it, a star within our own galaxy exploded. The one before that was Tycho-Brahe's uh, supernova in 1572. Uh, again, a, na- a naked eye supernova, one that could be seen in daylight, and I think Kepler's mm-hmm. could as well. Um, and it, the, the thing that I think is fascinating, and I think it's true for both of these, certainly other supernovae as well, we can still study the light of the explosion from those because of what are called light echoes. So you imagine a, an exploding star. It sends out a pulse of light that doesn't last very long. It only lasts a month or so. Uh, but as it goes outwards from the, the site of the explosion, uh, it hits distant clouds of dust, which light up, and that light is then scattered, uh, some of it, back to Earth. So... Mm. With modern telescopes, you can actually observe the pulse of light that came from a supernova within its first few months back in the 17th century, uh, but look at it with the modern equipment that we would have, we would look at it with today, uh, because of these light echoes. You see, you know, the, the 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 dust clouds light up with the light of the supernova explosion. Mm, fantastic. Uh, yeah, it's fantastic stuff. Would you be able to observe, I know this is James Webb, so it's infrared, but would you be able to observe that uh, after effect today with a backyard telescope at all? Um, you can, uh, the, 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 yes, the, there are, um, um, you know, uh, amateur astronomers who have imaged the supernova remnant of uh, supernova 1987A, except that you don't get anything like the same detail because no. uh, even though backyard telescopes are actually quite sensitive with modern detectors, um, what they don't have is what we in the trade call the plate scale, which is effectively the magnification. To get the magnification that you've got here, you need a six and a half meter diameter telescope. And there aren't many amateurs who've got anything like that. And certainly if you have it on the ground, you're going to have blurring by the atmosphere. Yeah. The fact that the web is six and a half meters in diameter and above the Earth's atmosphere is really what gets it uh, into the details that we can see. Um, oh. Just one, one final comment. Uh, what we yep. can't see is the remnant of the star supernova itself we can't see the neutron star that's uh probably at the at the middle of all this because there's just too much dust and debris around to penetrate that even for a telescope as powerful as the james Webb, mm. that'll all clear up eventually won't it yeah it, it will in a few thousand years time and then uh, you know whatever Webb's successor is in those days they'll get a great view no they'll probably be able to just go there by the Maybe even go there that's right <laughs> don't know all right Fascinating story. Uh, This is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. 
Space Nuts. Now, Fred, time to uh, tackle some questions and maybe even answer one. Uh, uh, we've got a whole bunch of stuff today, uh, kind of remnant text questions that I sort of had on the back burner for no other reason than I never got around to them. But uh, a, a quick question from Travis uh, in New Zealand that you could answer rather quickly, I imagine. If a comet was coming our way and we had time to try to save the world, would it be possible to blast it with a laser and melt it? Um, if, theoretically, it would if you had a big enough laser. Uh, but that's the problem. Um, if you've got a comet that survived you know, its passage around the sun and it's still made of solid lumps of ice or a solid lump of ice, uh, you've got a lot of melting to do. Yes. And so I think the answer is in practical terms, no. But uh, theoretically, if you could mount enough radiation, yes, you could. Wouldn't it keep refreezing, though? Uh, it would. What would happen? It it, it would probably. Um, it, so so as you melted it, it would essentially vaporize. It doesn't melt. It just turns. It sublimes ah, the okay. word. So it turns into vapor. So it would just all the ice would get trailed out behind it, um, or maybe even in the direction of the laser. Actually, it would be an interesting phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, but you you know you need a laser that's 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 far more powerful than anything we have at the moment. But, yeah, nice idea, though. Indeed. And I bet Travis's idea is going to be redundant when we invent the tractor beam and just drag them away. (laughs) Uh, There are such things already, but they're they're not that powerful. On molecular scales, that's right. Mm, Exactly. Uh, Thanks, Travis. Uh, Duncan from Weymouth, who's been a regular uh, sender in of questions, usually uh, audio questions, uh, send in a quick text question for Professor Fred. Are you coming back to the UK? Do you do talks anywhere, specifically around his area of the southwest, uh, or is he always in Scotland? Well, yeah, yeah, he's always in Scotland. Uh, he'd love to be able to attend a talk and ask some questions in person, but he can't travel far because he's disabled. Hmm. Uh, but, um, yeah, sitting down in a, in a pub with a beer uh, with a good question-answer session would be his idea of, of uh, great fun. Um, just wondering when you'll ever go back. Uh, you do. Uh, you used to do science in the pub in did, Australia yeah. every yeah. year. They used to do science in the pub and uh, Barbara, and they'll do it again. Exactly the same thing. The the Q and A session with the audience. Mm. That's right. Now, what's interesting is um, I um, in about two weeks' time I'll be going through Weymouth. I think. Oh wow! <laughs> um, not not. Uh, I'm not actually sure exactly what our route will be, but we're certainly going to be in southwestern England. Um, if we've got an email address for Duncan... I do have. I can give it to you. Pass it on to me and I'll drop him a line. Um, because, But by the time this episode goes to air, I think we'll have gone through that way. Yes, uh, because we are um, we're ahead almost of certainly working ahead to, to cover your trip, basically. I... I don't know that there are any public talks on the horizon, but I will talk to Marnie. Um, I mean, what is far more in- interesting than hearing from me is uh, my colleague, Dame Jocelyn Bell-Burnell, who will be mm. with us on this trip and with us. Actually, she won't be with us in, in Devon and Cornwall, no. We, she joins us in Wales. So, um, yeah, so it'll be just me, I'm afraid. Um, but uh, uh, let, 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 let me look at the itinerary just in case. Yeah. 
Okay, well, that's a good idea. Uh, and guess what? Just sent you the email with his email. Thank you very much. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah. It's all right. Um, so, uh, Duncan, by the time you hear this, you probably you may have heard from Fred. We'll see how you go with that. Let us know. Uh, next question is from Robert in Norway. Hello, Fred and Andrew. Greetings from Norway. Just finished the back catalogue of the show and can't wait for more. That's a pity because we're finished. <laughs> I wanted to ask, can we pretend that all of space and time is a flowing river where the Big Bang could be the bottom of a waterfall Space would be the water itself and time would be the flow, taking all sorts of weird detour, uh, detours because of rocks, etc., and ice, etc., you know, all that stuff. Uh, if time stopped, could the universe be called frozen since nothing is happening like the river would uh, if given the cold, uh, in the coldness of space? would be really cool if either of you wanted to meditate on this weird question and maybe add, it, uh, add to the met, uh, metaphor uh, never stop the show. We, um, we well, we're trying not to, Robert. Just depends on t uh, the uh, time itself as to whether or not that <laughs> continues. But uh, for the foreseeable future, we're still around. Um, I like his theory. Yeah, that's that's clever. Is he is he on the money? Yeah, actually, he's using exactly the same term that we use. Uh, oh. We we call the expansion of the universe the Hubble flow. Uh, and oh, of course. The Hubble flow is, is um, because the expansion was discovered by Edwin Hubble. Uh, so, um, and often we talk about the, um, uh, what we call the peculiar motions of galaxies. That mean, means a, mo a motion of a galaxy that's peculiar to itself rather than its participation in the expansion of the universe or the Hubble flow. Uh, so, uh, and we do imagine it as a river, river that the peculiar velocity is like somebody in a boat that's zooming around on a river that is actually flowing and taking them along. Mm -hmm. um, they can move around independently in the boat, uh, but they're still being carried along by the Hubble flow. And so that's precisely what um, what we uh, what we think of in terms of the expanding universe. Uh, it, it, stopping time, which is Terrific idea, but we haven't really managed to work out how that might happen. Uh, would indeed freeze the Hubble flow because if time stopped, everything stops. Yeah. Uh, and I think where Robert's coming from, uh, and he'll be familiar with this, um, as you know, Andrew, Marnie and I have spent a long time uh, from time to time touring around Norway in the middle of winter. Um, and one thing you see, and they're beautiful, you'd be driving along a road, perhaps along a hillside, and there's, right next to you is a frozen waterfall, uh, which is water that would be normally flowing down, you know, perhaps to go under a bridge under the road or something like that. And it's just solidified. It is a frozen waterfall, and they are absolutely spectacular because um, you've got lots and lots of ice, but it's just not moving. It's yeah. frozen in time. So that would be what the Hubble flow would look like if you stopped time but um yeah so but it's a it's a, it's a great analogy and yeah robert's right on the money with that there you go robert well done uh we've got one from nan who refers to herself as astro girl 70 uh and she just wanted to make a, a comment imagine my surprise when you answered my question on gravity on episode 345 thank you so much fred's explanation was easy for this 79 year old space nut to understand i'm a big fan keep up the good work i look forward to each episode thank you nan that's lovely, lovely. Yeah, yeah, great, great, great uh, from you, Nan. And you know what? It confirms one thing I wasn't sure of, but you do have one fan. 
now. Uh, we've got one from Kevin in Melbourne. Hi, guys. Love the show. It makes my Thursday exercise that much more enjoyable each week. I'm glad because I don't exercise. I'm... <laughs> I, I just sort of watch other people and that's enough to get my heart going so uh i'd like to place two bets out there like some of the famous bets in history bet one i bet that what we think of as the big bang that started our universe was in fact the other side of a collapsed black hole and that we are expanding towards the event horizon which we're, uh, one day we will reach that's bet one bet two that all the missing antimatter will be found inside our protons. Uh, recent evidence is suggesting that uh, a lot more is going on inside the old proton than previously thought, and I'm betting we find an equal amount of antimatter involved in holding them together. So I'm 52, so I reckon I've got about 30 years left in which these discoveries will be made. Anyone want to take my dollar? Uh yeah, I'll take him on. <laughs> ah, I knew you would. <laughs> knew you would. Yeah, because I think I'd bet the other way, actually. Um, well, that's interesting, isn't it? So, um, both, on both counts. Mm. Um, so, yeah. we're not uh, on the other side of collapsed black hole and uh, heading for the event horizon. Yeah, I, I mean, that's that's um, effectively uh, uh, old Roger Penrose's idea hmm. um, that we we our big banks come from black holes. Uh, I don't think anybody believes him, but he's got uh, he's got no way of proving it one way or the other at the moment. Uh, we need more observations, and it'll probably be observations of the cosmic microwave background radiation that give us the answer. Okay. And the second bet was antimatter will be found in protons. protons yeah. Um, who knows? They're, they're, it's certainly true that protons are turning out to be more complicated than we thought they were. <laughs> Uh, they're made of quarks and things. They're not fundamental particles, unlike electrons and neutrinos and stuff of that sort, which are photons. Um, so, yeah, I don't think that's likely either. <laughs> okay. Bad luck. Hold on to your money, Kev. Well, you know, I'm putting my dollar there as well. Right. Well, we'll put the $2 on a table and we'll wait until the answers are known. Two years. Yeah. With inflation, you could end up with a fair stash of cash anyway. Yeah. Judge you by how long this might take. Yes. <laughs> uh, we'll put it in a bank account with interest and see what happens. Uh, thanks, Kev. Uh, now, this is a question that we've been sort of pondering for a while uh, from Rusty and Donnybrook. Um, uh, he's sent us graphs and, uh, and background information. He's he's basically dredging up that old light issue where, you know, how is it we can still see light if it's already past us and, uh, you know, why do we know what we know about light when it's 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 all gone post-Big Bang? Um, and he sent us a, a lot of information, a lot of calculations, a lot of graphs, um, very pretty graphs. And uh, he, he, he's... Still pondering the question, Fred. We can't. Dis we just can't dismiss some people in, in regard to all this leftover oh, light. No, no, we would never do that. Um, we, no, I don't want to. I just. We, it just. They, they keep thinking about it, and yeah, light keeps right. coming. Up, light no, we, keeps coming up in the Q and A session. It does, yeah. So, um, just I'm not really answering uh, Rusty's questions directly here, but, but we'll need to look a little bit more detail at what he's sent us. But I just wanted to clarify. That, you know, that apparent conundrum 
hasn't the light from the early universe gone past us already? And I think it's because of a misunderstanding as to what, particularly what the cosmic microwave background radiation is. And that's the the flash of the Big Bang, which we can still see. Um, and the, the best analogue that, to me, always makes this seem crystal clear, and I hope it will to everybody else, um, is... Mostly the, rusty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, anybody who's interested. It's, it's the, um, the cheering audience analogy. So if you, if you imagine that you're at a concert of some sort, an outdoor concert, maybe mm-hmm. with a huge band, uh, Andrew Dunkley and the Perambulators or something like that, you know, very famous band. <laughs> Andrew and the Zimmer Framers. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah. um, and you've got an audience uh, which is spread over an enormous field or paddock uh, outdoors. And everybody's, you know, listening to music. They're raving about it. The, the band stops and the audience breaks into uncontrolled cheering. So everywhere in this paddock, people are cheering, you know, rapid they're cheering cheering wildly and and uh, and with uh, utter enthusiasm and the band uh dunkley and the perambulators they uh they like this for a while but then they get fed up <laughs> and so they say that's enough stop and so everybody stops cheering at the same time throughout the whole paddock they all stop cheering at the same time now the question is you are in the middle of this law yeah. Do you immediately hear silence? And the answer is no. Exactly. Because um, so one second after everybody stopped cheering, you're still getting the cheers from people who are uh, away, 330 metres away. Yeah. That's right, isn't it? That's the length of time tra- um, the the length like sorry sound travels in a uh, in a in a second uh, and then after 2 seconds it's 660 meters that there's still sound coming to you from from those people so you don't hear silence but what you've got is this kind of expanding ring of what you might call a, a cheering front where you know, if you, as you listen, you can still hear the cheering coming from this expanding ring, and it's expanding at the speed of sound. And that's a, an exact analogue of the cosmic microwave background radiation, because when the universe became transparent, which it did over a relatively short period, so the universe, all the universe is glowing brightly. This is irrespective of the expansion. That folds in a bit later. whole universe is glowing brightly, and then it stops glowing and becomes transparent. But because um, of the effect I've just mentioned, you don't immediately see darkness. What you see is a receding front of brightness that's going outwards at the speed of light, um, uh, but it, but you're still seeing the radiation that came from that. Uh, it's got a name. It's actually called the last scattering surface because it's three-dimensional in the universe. That's the surface at which the last scattering of, of light took place in the Big Bang, and it's it's going away from us at the speed of light. And so we're in the middle of all this, and so the idea of light going past us doesn't actually come into it. It's what we can observe as a person stuck in the middle of a, an expanding a, a universe that has been brilliant everywhere, but that has stopped 
uh, and it stopped suddenly. But the fact that it stopped suddenly doesn't mean that you see darkness. You just see this radiation. And so the expansion of the universe is just something that you add to that. And all it does is redshifts the radiation from brilliant light into infrared or in the case of ourselves uh, microwave radiation so i think so in, uh, yeah. instead of taking seconds uh, in a in a crowd of cheering yeah. people that suddenly stop it's taking 13.8 billion years <laughs> that's yeah. that's how far away it is now uh, mm. that's that surface um so you know that that perhaps puts a slightly different slant on uh, on where we are in the in the universe we're not in the middle of things we're only in the middle of our our perception of the universe the universe yeah. is full of light uh that's that's you know come from the big bang uh, but we see that front uh, uh expanding at the speed of light it's quite remarkable really it when is. you think of it <laughs> well that should keep rusty quiet i don't think it will i think rusty <laughs> will think around that and he'll have another he'll comment he'll send us more graphs that's fine <laughs> yeah, I, I like the graphs. Yeah. <laughs> so we didn't answer the question, we just pondered. We we put a different slant on it. Yes. All right. Time for what round are we up to with Rusty's questions? I don't know, but uh, keep them coming, Rusty. And if you'd like to send us some questions, you can do that too through our website, AMA tab, or send us your voice message on the right-hand side of our homepage. Have a look around while you're there. If you want to become a patron, you can do that. Or if you just want to uh, go to the shop and buy something, you can do that too, or you can just send us a message, whatever you like. Um, yes, but don't forget to tell us who you are and where you're from so that we can tell everybody else um, because we, you know, I don't know why, we just we, do. We like, we like to know who you are. Yeah. Um, but uh, that just about wraps it up. Fred, thank you so much. Pleasure, Andrew. Always good to talk. And we'll uh, catch you on the next episode. Indeed. Uh, <laughs> I thought a dad joke was coming. I paused. No, no. There was room no, for one. No, no. No. I'm, Phew, I'm out of Okay. Day. Thanks, Fred. We'll see you soon. Cheers. Uh, Fred Watson, astronomer at large, and thanks to Hugh in the studio who turned up today. He didn't do anything, but he was there. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, uh, we look forward to your company on the very next episode of Space Nuts. See you then. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.